0: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and in the studio with us today is an activist and an author. His book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, the author is D. Ray McKesson. Did I say that right, D. DeRay? DeRay. I can do that again. The author is DeRay McKesson. And he is in studio. We were we're just happy to have you to talk about this book. You are a civil rights activist, a community organizer, and of course, your award winning podcast. This is a live radio show, so I shouldn't be pushing people to your podcast, but we're going to anyway. <laughs> Pod Save it. the People. Um, we we know you because of how you have spoken up for people of color and now you are making the case in a book tell us tell us about the book and what you're doing
1: yeah so you know it's been a long four years since we were in the street in Ferguson I was one of the original protesters in Ferguson and was in so many cities afterwards and I was trying to think about what are the most important stories what are the most important experiences that I've had that I want to share with people I used to teach before that I've done uh, so much but there's still so much more work to do and I wanted to put that all in one place you know Twitter is normally I have these conversations, but that doesn't always allow us to tell a full story. And I actually listened to this sermon uh, that was entitled, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. And I remember being like, that's a really dope title. But what does that mean? And what he said is that sometimes you can tell your story so soon, all you see is the pain, not the purpose. Mm. And I got to a point where it was like, I actually understood the purpose behind like so many of the things I've been through and I wanted to share those stories. So I write about what it was like to be in the room with President Obama. What did it mean to to be in some of those meetings? What was the behind the scenes of being in the street? Uh, My mother left when I was three, came back when I was 30. Like what does it mean to show up as a whole person in these spaces every day? So I wanted to share those in a set of essays.
0: How easy was it for you to do?
1: Oh, you know, writing is hard. If anybody is ever going to write a book, it is hard. Uh, it was a lot of work. But some of the stories I felt like I've been writing for five years, six years. And some stories it was just about putting pen to paper. So I, I think about my mother's absence a lot. I just hadn't written about it. So that was sort of interesting to find the words to put on paper. You know, I talk about the protests all the time. So that was hard because I had to choose the stories to tell. You know, I was in jail in Baton Rouge for 17 hours. It was a long time I didn't plan to get arrested it it made a lot of news I've been sued by five officers in in two states and you know I've gotten death threats and the first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for trying to raise money to get me killed so they're all of those things and it's like picking and choosing which of the stories can I tell in a way that will make sense
0: you've taught and really emerged as as an activist when did you know that that was your calling
1: You know, the first, so Mike Brown got killed on August 9th. I went to St. Louis on August 16th to Ferguson. And the second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And that was, uh, I'll never forget that because it was like, this should never happen to anybody. We should live in a world where like, that's not real. What I learned, there were so many things. And there's a whole chapter in the book, uh, chapter three about the police. There's so many things that I didn't know then that I know now, right? So we know that a third of all the people killed by strangers killed by a police officer we know that a one in eleven gun homicides in california is actually committed by an officer There are just so many things that i didn't know and i've been obsessed with the like what's the behind the scenes so what like how did mass incarceration become mass i'll put you on the spot is it tell me something you can buy for three hundred dollars
0: gosh not even a phone no i guess you buy a phone for three hundred dollars it wouldn't be an iphone it
1: wouldn't be an iphone but you can buy a phone so in florida to this day theft over three hundred dollars is a felony and when you become a felon you permanently lose the right to vote in florida And I say that because if I ask you, like, what is a felony, most people are like murder. They're like blown up a building. But it's like, imagine stealing a TV TV as an 18-year-old and permanently losing the right to vote. So this isn't to say that theft is okay. This is to say that, like, the way we've thought about consequences and punishment is just off. And that's how mass incarceration becomes mass. So I'm obsessed with those things. In the book, I talk about things like there's a law in California that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year— can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. You're like, that just doesn't... You can love the police and that don't make sense, right? So how do we start to to give public conversation and public light to these issues?
0: So let me ask you this, because there have been so many issues with respect to race and police in the news in recent weeks. I'm thinking back to the funeral services for the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and the Reverend Jasper Williams, who is from Atlanta, was invited by the family to do the eulogy. And in the aftermath of the eulogy, he's been nothing but criticized because he talked about single moms not being able to raise young black men. And he also talked about, you know, black lives don't matter, he said, until we stop killing each other in our own communities. And I was just interested in your thoughts on that yeah, so
1: you know, I'm mindful that the things that he spoke about are the result of systemic failures. So what does it mean you you think about the wealth gap right And t- by 2053 it's projected that the median wealth for black people is going to be zero dollars, which is wild. The median wealth for black people uh, white people at the same time will be over a hundred thousand. And the question is, like, well, how did, how did white people gain wealth, right? Like, wh- where did white wealth come from? And it's not like all white people just worked really hard. It's not like, like that just didn't happen. What, what happened is, is that we literally gave white people wealth in the form of housing loans. We gave white people housing loans for, low, for almost no interest. We gave white people... Um, education for the GI Bill almost gave it to them for free uh, in ways that we did not do for black communities, right? So you think about the way that inequity has been baked in as a consequence of the system. So when you look at communities like Baltimore, when you look at places like Chicago, I live in Baltimore, is that what what do you think the outcome is going to be when you strip people of all their resources, when you heavily police in the midst of no access to jobs, to food, to money? Like, of course, the conditions sort of look one way, and we can actually do something about it. So you think about crimes of poverty, things like theft, it's like we could in poverty. You know, Trump just gave $700 billion to the military. It would only take $125 billion to take every single person out of poverty. It's never a question of resources. It's always a question of will. So when I heard Jasper, uh, Reverend Jasper Williams, talk about black-on-black black crime, it's like these are not, this is apples and oranges, right? There are people dealing with community violence, and we should talk about community violence. Black people don't have the only communities that are violent. That is not true, right? So so we can deal with that. Police violence is something wholly different, right? The police are sanctioned by the state. They have a right to, to intervene and use force. And we're saying that at the very least, there should be a sense of accountability. And at the best, there should be justice. And we always think about the difference between accountability and justice, that accountability is that you never have to experience... uh, Justice is what happens after the trauma has happened. Um, Let me redo that. Accountability is what happens after the trauma has happened. Justice is that you never experience a trauma in the first place. So even when officers get arrested and stuff like that, that's accountability. Like, we should live in a world where there's justice, where, like, people aren't over You think about New York City. 90% of the marijuana arrests in New York City are black and brown people. You and I both know that 90% of the people who are smoking marijuana in New York City are not... Black and brown. That's just not true.
0: Something else, someone else who's in the news that you know and was back on the the national front page in the last uh, few weeks, former President Barack Obama, who gave that very stinging rebuke to the president— when he received that award in uh, the University of Illinois uh, a couple of weeks ago. So is he back? Is that going to help the party's cause going into November or no? What are your thoughts on the midterm elections?
1: Everybody needs a little dose of hope, and I think that he provided that for people. My push to President Obama when we met with him, uh, and the push continues, is that I, I think that for a younger generation, the idea of just voting for voting's sake is just a hollow idea that, like, You know, I'm one of many people who voted my entire life. I still got dragged out of a police department by my ankles. I still got shot at with rubber bullets. I still got pepper spray. Voting wasn't like this panacea that just like healed all things. We think about voting as like one of many tools in a toolkit. And we should be able to build our house with as many tools as possible. So we should vote. We should be in the streets, we should run for office, we should do all of those things. So I think the more and more that uh, President Obama and Michelle Obama start to help people think about the issues that should animate the vote, I think that will be more effective. I think the idea of sort of just voting is not really a motivator. That speech though, where he sort of, the first time he sort of comes out and is like, Trump is bad, you're like, thank you, right? Like we knew that, we're happy you said it though. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity leading up to November to help people think about the issues. Right. So you think about in Florida, uh, there are two million ex-felons that can't vote. It'll be the single biggest re-enfranchisement of voting in the history of the country. And like we should talk about that. Right. In Louisiana, how many people are on a jury?
0: 12, 12, plus the alternates.
1: In Louisiana, it only takes 10 of those 12 people to convict you of a felony where you can get sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. It's like a wild system. And this, in, in November, people have the opportunity at the ballot to change that, to make all 12 be needed to vote for you to be convicted, which is like happening in 48 other states right now, right? So there are all these actual things that people should be mobilized to go vote for and not just vote against this guy.
0: Why don't more people know this? Yeah, I don't know. I think that sometimes
1: uh, what makes it to the... the
0: Especially the folks who do vote. Because if we are to look at the playbook that the candidates use in both parties, there's an understanding or an expectation that more senior people will vote and will vote consistently. And once you've conditioned them to vote your way, that's what they're going to do. With your generation, that is entirely not the case. And as you just said, it's not voting against somebody. It's got to be voting for something and not just voting because... Y'all said vote.
1: Yeah, I don't know why it hasn't broken through. You know, I think that there, I think some of it, we think about activism is organized storytelling, and I I think that sometimes uh, we've not figured out how to tell the best stories in, in the best way. Um, but you think about even voter ID in this, uh, in this state, it's like Georgia requires uh, a record of every name change that a woman has had. So if you're like an older, if you're an older woman who, has had a set of name changes like you have to document that for voter ID like that doesn't make sense right so part of this is how do we peel back the system to help them see the way that the inequity and the injustice actually caked into it Um, and that's like why I wrote a book that's why I'm here talking to you today because people don't know
0: what is it that you're wanting readers to take away from the book. I hope that people look at the book. I hope that it
1: it allows them to reflect on their own experiences better. I hope that they learn from it. So like the chapter on the police, I hope that you like you walk away being like, wow, I just didn't know. Right. You obviously know the police are killing people. You don't need me to say that. But there's like an undercurrent of the way the system functions that I hope people walk away knowing. And then with a lot of the other chapters, I hope that people are able to take their own personal experiences and think about what they mean in a larger context.
0: And talk to us about bully and the pulpit. So this idea, that that essay started with
1: somebody being like, would you meet with Trump? And I was like, you know, I don't know if it's my job to tell the bully to stop bullying me. Somebody should tell the bully to stop bullying you. But I don't know if it's my job to walk up to the bully and be like, hey, I'm a real person. It's like, I think the bully knows that you're a real person and is choosing to act that way anyway. So it was this meditation on what does it mean to fight back and, and why.
0: What are you thinking about 2020? Would you ever run for office?
1: Oh, so I would run for office again, uh, not for president right now. That seems... Uh, like there's a crowded field and a lot of great people. So I'm interested in people like Cory Booker. I'm interested in seeing what Kamala does. You know, they say Deval Patrick might run. Um, I've talked to Terry McAuliffe on the podcast. You know, I, I think he is probably running. So there are a lot of people um, who I think it'll be a crowded field. When I think about who will win, though, and who will animate the base, it'll be, again, somebody who's not running against Donald Trump, but somebody who is running for a different version of America.
0: You write about all these great things in the book. And we look ahead to, to not only to the midterm elections, to the 2020 elections. And right now, there is this rush to put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court.
1: You know, I think that there's so many people who have been waiting for a fight, right? That like, the right has been just running over people's lives. Trump has been unapologetic about doing whatever he wants to do. And the left is sort of like performing this high road. And it's like, the reality is is that we have to defend the space that we have. And we definitely have to defend the moral space that we hold. And we just haven't seen a fight before. And it was like, finally, like he's coming out swinging. Kamala came out swinging at the hearing. And it's like, we need more of that, right? That they are like, humbling us and we're just like, we're not going to be the bad guy. It's like no people want you to fight. And I think that that was powerful to see Corey stand up in that way.
0: There's a sense and correct me if my perception is incorrect that the pot of people is certainly much larger on the left than it is on the right, but the leaders of the right have more direct control or buy-in from that constituency whereas on the left it's it's a big tent so everybody's welcome and we don't want to offend anybody. So as you said, when Cory Booker picked a fight, it was like, wow, I can get behind that. Uh, You think the the left and the Democratic Party is ever gonna figure that out and get it fixed? Yeah, I think that
1: the difference between the right and the left in this respect is is that the right just has a different, uh, they are employing a different tactic when it comes to telling stories. So the right is rooted in nostalgia. So with the right, they're just recall. The right to make America great, again, is about recall and memory. It's a, For us, it's like, you know, we've survived that part of America and we don't want to go back to it. But what you see Trump and the administration doing is just using all of that imagery, the attack on black athletes. Like he's just using this because the hardest work of it is already done. We already know what the symbols mean. We already like that's about taking us back to a time on the left. We are engaged in this deep imagination that the world we're fighting for is one we've never seen before. So, when you think about this idea that everybody has access to healthcare, you've never seen that. I've never seen that before. When you think about every kid being able to read and write, you've never seen it. I've never, read right? Like, we are always engaged in make believe. And that's actually just like a harder story to tell. It's a harder story to get people behind because. I'm trying to convince you of something you've never, ever felt and touched and seen and heard before.
0: And may not believe it could ever happen.
1: Right. Whereas the left is like, we know, like they know what racism looks like. We know what racism looks like. And they just inflame that for a base every single time. So I think that the, the work is just different on each side. But I'm hopeful again, I think that who runs against Trump and who wins will not be somebody who is just running as will not be somebody who's just running to beat him. It'll be somebody who's running to like usher in a different version of America. It's frankly one of the things that people love about Bernie. You know, I remember meeting with Bernie is that Bernie has mastered the what, a little shaky on the how, right? So Bernie can tell you very clearly like what the world would look like if he was in charge. Or like did a, how we get there, bah, you know, shaky. Hillary was really good at the how and wasn't as effective at telling the story about the what. So her plan about the how was perfect. When you heard her talk about like what America could be, it just like didn't resonate with people. Like The what just didn't resonate as much with people. And I think that whoever beats Trump will be somebody who has mastered the what. And I think, I hope, somebody who's figured out how to talk about the how in a way that also makes sense, too.
0: Do you think the Trump election was a rebuke of the Obama presidency?
1: You know... I, in some ways, yes, but I'm also mindful of the ways that voter suppression just works in the country, right? So Trump didn't win the popular, like more people did not vote for Trump. That's, that is true, right? That like we won the popular vote, but the way we've set up the system isn't one based on like equity or justice. You think about the Voting Rights Act getting gutted, right? That like this election came on the heels of all these protections around equity and justice and race being stripped away. So I think some of it was definitely like a there's a set of America that is like, we are tired of all this talk about race and justice and the police, and they were, like, making their voices heard. Um, but part of this, too, is that, you know, the the right worked for decades to build an infrastructure that would weaken voting. You think about Wisconsin. People talk about low voter turnout in Wisconsin. It's like, well, yeah, they've gerrymandered the entire state. So so it's not like people didn't want to vote. It's that they couldn't really. You think about in, Europe, you think about in Georgia, right? Yes. That, like, if not for the random reporter who wrote about closing those polling places like none of us would have ever known. So you think about all of that that's happening across the country that like a broadcaster doesn't know about and a reporter doesn't know about and nobody tweeted about, and that's what we're experiencing.
0: We just had polling, some of the first polling going into the midterm elections right after Labor Day, and to hear the different analysts discuss what's going on state by state, by and large, the conservative analysts will argue that the Democrats always pull higher in uh, right, a- right around Labor Day because all of the people who really vote go away on vacation for the Labor Day holiday, and therefore they are not at home to answer their phones. And so it looks like a candidate like Stacey Abrams here in Georgia or other Democratic candidates who are running for statewide office or national office in their communities are looking really strong against their Republican counterparts. And yet the thought process is, and maybe this is the the... the voter suppression that you discuss, it still ends up, you know, 52-48 after November.
1: Yeah, I think that what we've seen with the set of races, you think about Kazuo Cortez, you think about Anna Presley in Boston, you think about Gillum in Florida, and you think about Stacey here in Georgia, is that conventional wisdom would have said, you can't do it at all. You don't have the money, you don't have the infrastructure, the polls aren't on your side. And what we know to be true, with these four races have helped us see is that we don't need those old tools to, t- to usher us into a new America, right? That, like, we can walk into a new version of this America with the things that we know are true, with the vision, with the connection with the people, and with the plan. And when you think about Stacey, there's a vision, there's a connection with the people, and there's a plan. And we've seen that mobilize people all across the state. With Diana, with Ocasio-Cortez, it's like, what does she have? She had a vision, a connection with the people, and a plan. You know, I asked Ocasio-Cortez... I said, you know, some people criticize you for being a part of the party. Like, why didn't you run as an independent? Or like, do you have a good relationship with the party leadership? And she said, DeRay, when I knock on doors, I'm reminded I have a perfect relationship with the party because the party is all those people's doors I knocked on. The party is not somebody sitting in Washington. The party is a single mother. The party is a person working two jobs. The party is a person who believes in justice. And I think that what we see with Stacey, Ayanna, Gillum, know Kaiser cortez is that they understand that as long as the people running for office have a deep relationship with the heart of the party, they'll be good. So I'm not worried about the polls she got this far. Uh, I think it's just about taking it home now.
0: What are you going to be doing once you're done traveling the country talking about this book?
1: So we still do so much work around uh, the untold story about police violence. So You think about things like, you know, we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined, which is sort of wild, right? So we do a lot of studies to help activists and organizers all around the country think about, like, how do you— Take down the system from within. So, in the book, there's a lot of the data that we've done. We're doing some other projects that we haven't publicly announced yet. So, that'll still be continuing. Um, and then, trying to amplify the voice of other people. So, even at the book tour stop uh, tonight, there'll be a local activists there who will talk about some of their work, so that we can make sure that as we go across the country, we're trying to build the biggest choir as possible.
0: You're just so impressive. I'm like at a loss for words. This is just so. This is just so good.
1: Appreciate it. We have so much work to do.
0: Ah. They're keeping you stocked in the vest, I take it, or is that you're still just kind of...
1: One vest, one vest. I've been wearing the same vest since the protest in 2014. The vest, uh, you know, we were in the street for 400 days. And Mm -hmm. I say that because if you ever saw us marching, it wasn't that we thought marching was cool. It was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October 2014. So if we sit still for more than five seconds, we were arrested. But we were in the street for a long time. and When it got cold, I needed something I could wear that I would never have to pack. And the vest became that. Uh, the reason I still wear it is because it reminds me that that happened, right? Mm-hmm. That I can be in enough interesting spaces. I can do really dope interviews like this and be with really great people like you. And, I'd, and I can get far away from that time that we were, like, sleeping on the side of the road and those sort of things. And I never want to forget that that was real because that reminds me every single day how fragile freedom is.
0: And so few people recognize that, don't they? So
1: few people do. And they were, you know, like— the, the reason why it's called The Case for Hope is that, you know, when we say the system is broken and people say, no, it's, it's working exactly like it was designed, my takeaway from that is that it was designed, right? Somebody made this up. And because people made it up, we can make something different. They can rewrite the tax code on the back of scrap paper and napkins. We can actually do all this stuff in a generation. So don't let people tell you you got to wait. To generate, like, I'm setting the foundation for the next 300 years for when we win. No, I'm planning to win in this lifetime, and, like, we can do it. So the question for me is, like, how do we build power and tell stories that allow us to win in this lifetime?
0: And how do you fight back against folks who don't take you and people your age seriously?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm looking for uh, partners, not parents, right? And I'm looking for peers and not parents. And there are a lot of people in this space— um, who still think about the world in, like, one sort of way, that, like, the older you are means the wiser you are. And let me just tell you, I've been in a lot of rooms, and that's not true. And the other, you know, I think about wearing the— I wear this vest every day, and I wore it in the White House, and people are like, how dare you not wear a suit? It's like, the suit didn't make me smarter, right? Like It's not like I, like, understood 10 more things to a suit on today. It's like, we're just committed to the work. And what is, what is welcoming is that there are a lot of spaces across the country where people are like— ready to do the work. What was true about the protests in St. Louis and the protests in many cities is that it was a range of ages that came out and said, like, let's do it, right? So I'm interested in that. And I'm and I'm less interested today in trying to convert the non-believers. I'm more interested in creating space for the people who believe but don't yet feel invited. So, like, how do I, like, you know, you want to do work, don't know what to do. Like, I'm ready to, like, take you in and, like, try and build the biggest tent, or to pivot you in the right place so you can do work wherever you are, uh, That I think we actually spend too much time trying to figure out what to do with the people who don't want to do anything. And I think that there are actually way more of us who want to do something and just don't know what to do.
0: How do people connect with you? So you
1: can go to DeRay.com to buy the book or to, to be at a tour stop. Um, and it's just DeRay, D-R-E-Y on Twitter and most of social media.
0: All right. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, myandalistcondo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.